All right, this morning, we started in 1517, we made it all the way to 1917, right? 1917, and we got to the Schofield Bible. Now, we talked about the church, authority, the Bible, and systems. We talked about all the issues with all of that. Then, we kind of imagined whether it was 1917 or whether it, you know, was yesterday, if someone opened a Schofield Bible and started reading everything in it, I want to show you how easily, first and foremost, the system becomes dominant and becomes your hermeneutic. We talked about that entire problem, all the shortcomings with all of that. And then we started really trying to see what makes the Schofield Bible somewhat different from what was the first study Bible per se. The Geneva, all right? So we, we, we started looking at some of that. We looked at, uh, t- well, te- technically 11 things, right? I think I kept saying 10, but 11 things that kind of made it somewhat unique and different and some of the features. Does anybody remember any of those 10? The first and last in its referencing, Okay. Okay, the notes uh, for, well, one of the things he wanted to do was try to make a study material that was out there available to the average person who could not possibly afford it. He put all of the helps on the actual page where the helps were needed so you didn't have to go looking for them or look anywhere else. All right, what else did he do? Yeah, he wanted to uh, provide full context, so to uh, try to uh, prevent things from being taken out of context. He did a thing with uh, the great def- the great words of Scripture and ha- adding definitions to be uh, submitted and approved by uh, large bodies of Christians, trying to get us some kind of agreement on some key words, uh, theological words and words that everyone needs to know. He introduced the books, right? Yeah, he divided the the uh, the Bible into paragraphs and subheadings that were italicized. All right. Yeah, well, especially prophecy, especially prophecy. He, that's what he emphasizes is not following the allegorical method of hermeneutics in any way, shape, or form. He he took a different approach. Next, he dealt with the covenants. The covenants are outlined, which is very important to remember. The covenants are not ignored. All right. Next, then, he introduced, and point number 10, dispensations, all right? And remember the exact quote, the dispensations are distinguished, exhibiting the majestic, progressive order of the divine dealings of God with humanity. The increasing purpose, which ru- runs through, uh, through and links together the ages from the beginning of life of man to the end in eternity. Augustine said, distinguish the ages and the scriptures harmonize. Point number 10 in the Schofield Bible introduces us to the thing that we're going to be working on for I don't know how long, dispensationalism, and that's the system, all right? Now, how am I approaching the subject of dispensationalism? I emphasized this this morning. I'm not approaching it as someone agrees with it, nor am I approaching it as someone who disagrees with it. I'm approaching it almost like a theological hypothesis, right? Here's this system. If we agree with it, 
If I agree with it or think it's biblical, I will say. If I disagree with it, I will disagree with it. Because I am not beholden to any system, nor do I think any one system ever has all the answers. I think the more you... Uh, here's the thing. You can, you can master a system. This is very important. You can master a system. And if you allow that system to control you, it will master your hermeneutic. Therefore, you will always see your system in the Bible because the system actually blinds you from seeing the text. But at some point, when you stop learning theology and learning a system and say, I'm going to actually study the text and I'm not going to be beholden to a system, typically the systems start falling apart or you start realizing problems with it. That's why you have to constantly be studying the text. That's why Bible study methods are so important. That's why Christians have to be reading and studying the text and studying the text. But so many times when Christians disagree or argue, they don't run to the text. They think they run to the text, but they actually go run to a system or a person to see which scriptures they offer up as support. Then they cite those scriptures, but they cite those scriptures with the explanation they took from someone's book. Meaning... They didn't come up with that explanation. They're simply borrowing someone else's explanation. Meaning that what is the authority? Not the Bible, but the system. And it it becomes maddening. and, And Christians, everyone in Christianity should just stop playing the game and just acknowledge we're no different than the Catholic Church. We have our own popes, our own magisterial authority, and the Bible is not the authority in any way, shape, or form. So the only way to say, well, that people say, well, then what do we do? Well, Start using Bible study methods. Start actually studying the Bible and know the systems and be able to do what? See how they're influencing your hermeneutic. Because they, they create a presupposition. If you, if, for example, if you hold to the system of lordship as given by MacArthur, how are you going to read any text dealing with salvation that seems to include works? You're going to do it from a lordship perspective. If you do it from a perspective of losing your salvation, you're going to see those verses as saying you'll lose your salvation because you're just reading the system into it. So I cannot stress that enough. And then number 11, I know we didn't get to it this morning, was, does anyone remember the reasons why he used the authorized version, the King James version as the text? And when it, I didn't go through all the reasons. It's, it's like a whole paragraph here. It's a whole paragraph. So I'm not going to go through it because it's not of great use, but he just makes an argument why he's using the King James. Okay. All right. So there you go. Those are that. Now, from that, now I know this is not the way we're supposed to be doing teaching dispensationalism because I, I should just come here and have my little chart ready, right? And say, here are the dispensations. But I don't want to approach it that way because I'm trying to show you this overarching problem of how the system becomes your hermeneutic. That's first. I do want you to know the system, but I want us to slowly get there because what I want you to see is if someone, because a lot of times we don't, I mean, I look, I, I don't know how people buy it when they buy a Bible what they do. But I mean, what you need to realize is when you buy a Bible, you really should look at all the, the information in the beginning because they're telling you exactly what they're going to try to do. They're tr- literally telling you, hey, I'm trying to get you here, all right? Now, of course, the Schofield Bible, it's much more prominent. But every Bible from, I mean, they, they, they usually their introductions, all the introductory material in, your, in a Bible typically gives you some information of what they're trying to do or their, their basis for what they're trying to do. Now, if it's a Bible with just a text, they may not have any information, right? But if it's a study Bible, they definitely are going to give you lots of, of information, all right? Now, 
Now, I never verified 100%. I kept saying, if someone wants to look it up online real quick, they can. I believe the original uh, edition of the Schofield Bible was 1909. Now, it's a number, so I never trust myself. So if anybody wants to look it up, they can. I believe the first one was 1909, and then the second edition was 1917. Now, between 1909 and 1917, he, he added some things, right? Because what happened is it sold like crazy starting in around 1909. I don't know when it started, the numbers started going up, but it started selling and it started spreading around the world. So then when he got an opportunity, they were going to reprint it with new text and new type and they were going to make all these changes. He was like, hey, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add some stuff here. So I'm going to read a little bit of what he says quickly in the preface to this edition, the 1917 edition. Did you find what year? Oh, you didn't? Okay. I believe it's 1909. I could be wrong, but I'm almost positive it's 1909. All right? So here's the preface, all right? And this is what he says. The very large demand for the Schofield Reference Bible in every part of the world and the consequent large and repeated printings have made it necessary to reset the entire Bible in new type that the high standard of the Oxford University Press may be maintained and the public furnished with the Bible in the highest form of the printer's art. To the attainment of this high purpose, no labor or editor or publisher has been counted too great. So, this, why is this important from a historical perspective? This is leading up to 19, the 1917 edition, right? Which is sometimes referred to as the classic edition. And in fact, this is the anniversary edition of the classic edition, which is the 1917 one. Now, the 1917 one, what I want you to see is from, from its first printing, and I think it's 1909. Do I? It's 19. Oh, look at that. I remembered a number. We better just stop and I better just retire from ministry right now. Okay, that's the end. Thank y'all. It was great. I'm going to go out on top. I got something right. Okay, all right. So from 1909 to 1917, the thing was selling and it went around the world. Now, I cannot stress this is the thing that I have a hard time trying to convince people in the pew of, right? Because people in the pew, I know from your perspective, you don't really care a lot of times what's going on in the greater world of Christianity. You just don't care, right? If a seminary professor puts out some paper, you're like, whatever. I doubt you're reading uh, theological journals published in seminaries. You're not probably looking at the latest books, you know, in a, in a publication going, what theology books? You just don't care. The average person doesn't care. Now, the fact that the average person doesn't care makes them very, very vulnerable, right? Because pastors may care. So here's some idea that may be off here, obscure, being talked about in a seminary classroom somewhere, published in a theological journal. Pastors start reading it. Pastors start adapting the idea. They step into the pulpit, present the idea, and rarely, first, they never present it as, hey, here's this theological hypothesis, let's all work on it together. They don't do that. They present it as dogmatic fact, this is how the Bible is to be understood. The person in the pew has no way of going, I know where that's coming from. Now, you should, in theory. Now, this is the whole problem with the Protestant system, right? Because the Protestant system puts the responsibility on whom? 
on you. Now you would say, no, 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 it's the pastor's responsibility. No, because you're supposed to be like the Bereans, right? You're supposed to be checking to see whether these things are true, all right? But then you see the, the problem? Now here, what I want you to see is all of us, up to this point, let's just say, I'm not going to say there, I'm, I know this is a oversimplification of church history. I know it's an over, oversimplification. But if we think about it, 1560 moving forward, we would say the more reformed, Calvinistic, amillennial, allegorical approach was the dominant approach. And what I will say what drove that was what were they putting into the hands of people? The Geneva Study Bible. Remember, it was the first mass-produced Bible for the public. All right? Then 1909 comes along, and really the next major study Bible with a reference system and all of these things is the Schofield. Now, this gets put into the hands of people, and what started changing? Views started changing. And in many cases, they didn't even know it was coming probably from the Schofield Bible. Because you know pastors were taking it and preaching it. And they probably did not present it as, hey guys, here's this new theological concept, let's do so. When I was a young Christian, nobody was coming to the pulpit going, hey, there's this new theological hypothesis known as lordship salvation. We're going to challenge and test it. I was just told, if you don't do this and you don't do this and you don't do this, you're probably not saved. I had no way of processing, well, wait a minute. What, where's that coming from? Now, I heard that there was lordship debates going on. I mean, I knew, I mean, you, it was hard to avoid that, but I didn't have the capacity at the time to be able to put it into any, like, I didn't go, oh, wait, this is some major theological change. If you don't know that that's a theological change, you just assume it's the way it is or the way it's always been. On one hand, I can't blame the people in the pew, right? I mean, you can't spend your life you know, searching out everything. It's hard enough for hard enough for anyone to keep up with, especially now considering there's so many schools and so much, you know, that's one of the things I, I try to subscribe to every Bible college and seminary I can find online to hear sermons and lectures because sometimes I'll be like, what is going on there? Like, what is happening? Sometimes it doesn't go anywhere and the next, sometimes 10 years later, right, it's a big deal. Like when, when Warren first put out Purpose Driven Life, I don't think most people thought it was going to be a big deal. It turned into a big deal, okay? It turned into a very big deal. When the prayer Jabez was first released, I don't think anybody thought it was going to be a big deal. You, there's always these moments in time where you don't realize what it's going to become. So it's, the, it's supposed to be the pastor's job to be paying attention to that. And then to me, his job is then to say, guys, 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 we got to look at this and now let's work through. But see, churches don't do that. Either they just say, that's all wrong. Just don't pay any attention to it. Don't read those books. That's how, you know, I can't stand that. My thing is, no, everyone should get a copy and we should all try to figure it out. But I want you to see, even he realized this thing's selling like crazy and it's spreading where? Around the world. So we're going to make it look nice. We're going to make it look as nice as we can. I know maybe that's an oversimplification, but you get it. And he goes on to say, the Schofield Reference Bible has now been nearly eight years in the hands of the Christian public. So in 1917, it had been in the hands of the Christian public, he says, for nearly eight years. 
all right? The editor would be more or less than human if he were not profoundly grateful, not, not only nor chiefly for the large cell according to it, but rather for the assurances which have reached him from every part of the earth, a blessing through its use. So this is going everywhere, everywhere. The more it goes around, look, inevitably, and, I, and I, it's hard for anyone to see when it happens, right? It's hard for you, uh, me to see. If I go back to my own Christian life, it's hard for... Now, I can look back now and see at the time I couldn't catch on because at the time I thought the way I was learning was the way you were supposed to learn, that I was supposed to learn a system, right? I was supposed to learn a system. In fact, if you think about it, when I... The first trip to the Bible bookstore in Abilene, Texas, right? The older gentleman, the, the, the uh, Danzlers know him, right? The older gentleman, when he saw me, now I'm so, I'm forever grateful for what he did, right? Because he saw a teenager and he could have taken me over to the, you know, the, here's the cool hip books for teenagers. He didn't. He took me to the theology section and he gave me the foundations of the Christian life, Christian religion or, Christ, or however of Christianity. I've got the book somewhere. Um, by James Montgomery Boyce from 10th Presbyterian. Now, that's amazing that he handed me a, a basically a systematic theology as a teenager. He didn't view me as just, you know, I'm just some dumb kid. He, I mean, I, I'm so grateful for that. That was absolutely foundational for me. But guess what the only flaw in the process was? He gave me a system. Gave me a system. What I needed first is not the system. I needed the book I ended up finding in the discount bin for 50 cents, 12 Dynamic Methods of Bible Study Methods. That's the book that really had a massive transformation in my life. I needed to know how to study the Bible before I started learning the system. Every Bible college that I went to, every Bible institute, all taught me systems. They were not really teaching me the Bible. That you, you think you're learning the Bible, but you're really not. You're just being imposed a system, a system, a system, a system. And sooner or later, the system does what? Becomes the guide to your hermeneutic. I, 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 I want to make sure you guys get that. It's hard to realize that's happening to you. I did not realize that was happening to me. It took me forever. Now, the only thing is the more systems I learned, and then I started realizing, wait a minute. Nobody agrees on anything, and that becomes majorly problematic. And then when you're like, you're in a system that you think is completely opposite to that system, like you're over here in the lordship world, you start taking classes at a Catholic university, and they tell you, that's Catholicism. Then you're like, but I'm not a Catholic. So then you're like, well, do I become a Catholic? Because if I'm already holding to Catholicism, like then, then you start realizing I got a problem, right? But I still, the, the, still pro, the problem there was still you're combating what? You're just combating systems. I, I can't, I know we're gonna, I'm get, you're gonna get tired of me saying that in this series, but I want you to see what had happened. This thing was selling like basically hotcakes and now the system was becoming the dominant hermeneutic. I cannot stress that enough, all right? So everybody got those two paragraphs? He go that this testimony 
has come in part from great biblical scholars has been most gratifying, that, but it has been and a special cause of gratitude, know that the plan, know that the plain people of God in their homes and far away missionaries and heathen lands have been helped to a clearer and more spiritual apprehension of the word of God. He's acknowledging who's starting to figure it out? The average person. The average person. Now, once the average person thinks that they have a clear apprehension of the word of God, what does that mean? They're going to tell pastors that they are wrong. And they will start forming churches to go with their more clear apprehension of God's word. Say, that sounds good until you take what that meant in reality. And that's exactly what started happening, right? Many people started breaking away from the larger denominations at this time because you really have the formation of what's called fundamentalism. Remember this morning, I connected it with which the fundamentals that I tell everyone to read. I I don't know, like how many times a year do I beg everyone to read these four, uh, uh, four volumes, right? Over and over and over. And then what went along with this? Sarah mentioned it this morning. What's connected to Schofield and the fundamentals? A certain Bible conference. Niagara Bible Conference, which produced the Niagara Creed. All of that fits together. And they started formulating churches that left the major denominations, and they started pulling their people out of the seminaries to form independent churches with Bible institutes because they felt the seminaries were corrupt because they were going a different way. They were going, and guess what led to a lot of this? Guess what, guess what led to a lot of this? I'm holding in my hands. The 1917 Schofield. And those, those books right there, I cannot express to you the, I've tried to try to tell, I've tried to tell and beg and plead everyone how the significance of these volumes of the fundamentals. These volumes are so, I mean, they changed the Christianity you know is greatly influenced by these books. And again, many of these books did not end up in the hands of the average person, but just with the people who was going to start influencing the average person. All right. He goes on to say this. Um, I'm going to try to. Oh, okay, yeah, because uh, he's getting ready to tell you what he added to this edition. All right, here we go. But the very warmth of this welcome given to his labors has made the editor realize and understand that in any new typing of it, he might find his opportunity to add. He's like, oh, wait, 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 wait. You're doing a new printing of it? Well, give me an opportunity to add some things to it, all right? So what did he add? Here we go. He's going to tell you what he added. If I can find where I just stopped reading, okay? Here we go. Um, To add, here and there such further help as experience has shown to be desirable. This he has, and there uh, such further help as experience has shown to be desirable. This he has endeavored here to do. First, he gives the panoramic view of the whole Bible, which is found right here. The panoramic view of the Bible. We're going we're to be working on this tonight. The panoramic view of the Bible. All right? Why? Because this is going to start showing you the system is going to start taking place, right? Everybody, when you do dispensationalism, everybody just wants to know, what are the seven dispensations? 
but we've got to look at all how it's built, right? Because the more we see how it's built, what does that do? Give us a greater chance to see, one, how it could influence our hermeneutic. Because what do we want to do? You've got to be able to see the influence on your hermeneutic before you can then hopefully not be so influenced by it. I got no problem. Look, I, I want to make, and for anyone listening online, I want to make sure, I want people to learn every system. Every system. But you understand that the system is to be submissive to the scripture. The scripture is not to be submissive to the system. Everyone will tell you, I believe in the Bible. I believe in the authority of the Bible. But over and over and over, we know the reality. They are committed to the system. And you know, when you argue with them, they argue the language of the system. Because to argue the language of the text, I've tried to show you what it looks like when we actually study the text versus a system. When we study the text, it's like, how many times is the word Israel used? Let's look up every single reference. That's not following a system. All right? Hey, hey, whatever the other issue is, we've done it with numerous things, right? We're going to look up every single reference. When we, when we get into the whole new covenant, what did we find? When we started looking up the actual language of covenant, new covenant, and how it's found in the New Testament, it doesn't quite sound the way everyone preaches it. Remember when we got to the controversial one? When we say the word church, everyone says that there's two, two churches per se, right? There's the visible body and there's the invisible body. And we had a hard time identifying the invisible body with the actual language used in the scripture. And all of those situations, what did I, I had you look up every single verse to do what? To test the statements, to test the systems. And guess what? In many cases, it found us finding ourselves in conflict with what? Sometimes with our own system. And people say, well, that, isn't that dangerous? Well, not if, the, not if we believe the Bible's the authority. But I want you to see, if, you, if a church actually threw out the system, the preaching would be like, it would be, so, it would be so radically different, right? It wouldn't just be regurgitating MacArthur's commentary and outline form. It would be literally dealing with the text. And the preaching would not look and sound the same, but... Nobody actually wants to do that. So he adds the panoramic view of the Bible, which we're going to look at in great detail, all right? He goes, it is believed, he goes, okay, so this is endeavor here to do. The panoramic view of the whole Bible will, it is believed, show the unity of the book. In fact, in danger of failing to be perceived in face of the other and more evident fact that it is made up of many books. So he's going to try to make sure we understand it's made up of many books, but he's going to try to show us the unity of it in a panoramic view. That's going to be very important chronological data have also been supplied and on the mechanical side the more distinct type larger type uh, and the reference columns and the substitution of arabic for roman numerals will be noted as distinct improvements the editor is especially grateful and then he goes on to kind of give some of his gratitude and then he says uh he goes, uh, and well, he goes on to kind of quote from a, a scripture, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. And then he, uh, si- uh, then it's signed here, uh, January the 1st, 1917. All right. So 
That gets us through everything that we need to do. Now we're going to work on the panoramic view of the Bible. So if you're taking notes, you can have a new section called the panoramic view of the Bible. The panoramic view of the Bible. For those who listened to the preview, and I told everyone to download the Schofield Notes app, the, uh, the app does not, I believe, have the, uh, the panoramic view um, listed in it, all right? So yeah, I've got the notes right here. They've got the introduction to Genesis and then all the other notes will be here. So when we get to the other notes, we can, all right? We'll get there when we need it. Right now, it's not gonna be of any help, all right? So everybody ready? Here we go. How much time do we have? What time is it? Oh, we got about a good 30 minutes. All right, everybody got their thinking caps on? All right, now, here we go. Schofield wants us to understand a panoramic view. What I want us to do as we go through this, here's what I want us to think about. We want to see his points. We want to see how, how it helps us understand the Bible. But we also want to see what? First, how could this be foundational for what's coming? We all know what's coming, right? His dispensational. And he's not hit it, has he? Right there in his introduction, he told us he's going to use the dispensations, correct? So we're going to try to see how this panoramic view could possibly be connected to this. But we also want to see, does he provide, it, does this become a presupposition in how you interpret the Bible? Does that make sense? So we're going to look for that. All right, here we go. All right, we're going to go through this carefully. All right. The panoramic view of the Bible, the Bible incomparably the most widely circulated of books at once provokes and baffles study, right? So at once it provokes and literally his words, baffles study. So on one hand, he thinks it provokes study. The other hand, he thinks it baffles. Why? We, we could understand in theory why it should provoke study, right? Because one, it's God's word. And two, anyone reading it should realize just reading it is not really going to do, you're going to have a lot uh, to, to not understand if all you do is read it. If all you do is just read it, you may know facts, but there's going to be a lot that you're going to be like, uh, I think I need some help here, right? But it, it can be baffling or it can hinder study because it can be very, what? Uh, intimidating, convoluted. Sometimes it feels like it's contradictory. Where do I start? How do I even do it? Which then puts people vulnerable for doing what? Replacing the authority of the Bible for a system. And why do we so desire that? I say this all the time. The average person sitting in the pew wants certainty over truth. Certainty brings comfort. Certainty brings stability. Certainty gives you all that supposed warm feelings that Christianity is supposed to bring you. However, study has a tendency to do what to certainty? Destroy it. That stability typically gets blown up. That's why a lot of people don't want sermons that study. They want sermons that give certainty. Today we're going to look at Mark chapter 1 and we can break the chapter down into three very simple points. Point number one is this. Point number two. And anything that's kind of difficult or contradictory, you may just gloss over it and everybody's like, amen. What a wonderful sermon, pastor. What a wonderful sermon. But guess what? If they ever meet someone who actually asks questions, 
they'll be like, I don't have the answer. I'm like, I thought your church spent three years in Mark. Well, I mean, we didn't deal with, you know, difficult things like, you know, you know, we, we, we didn't deal with, with the curse of Jeconiah. We're not going to deal with that or we're not going to deal with this issue or we're not going to deal with that. Why? Because what we want sermons. We don't want actual study because actual study would be like, hey, guys, we got a major problem here. I don't know what's going on here. This makes absolutely no sense. Or the woman caught in adultery. Hey, guys, I don't even know if it belongs in the Bible. The story is not found in many manuscripts. I don't even know what we do here. Do we study it? Do we not study it? What do we do? I I don't understand this. Hey, guys. The Song of Solomon's kind of messed up. We think it's a cute love story. But it's a cute love story from a man who had a thousand women. I don't know how cute that is. Hey, we want to study the Proverbs. We're going to, we're going to, the man was a serial adulterer and a polygamist. I don't, do you really want to look at that? Like, yeah, you know, hey, we're going to teach our kids Father Abraham. He could have been a rapist, right? Like, oh, we're going to read that beautiful book called the Psalms. Oh, from another man who could possibly be a rapist, right? Like, like nobody wants to do that, right? Nobody wants to do that. But if you're really going to study and ask those kinds of questions, you got to cross, you got to cross the, 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 those issues and at least deal with them, right? Some people may be way over here in how they conclude and understand those certain events. Others don't. Hey, what is that whole thing that happened in the tent when Noah was drunk and had no clothes on? Something happened in that tent and nobody still to this day really knows what went on in there. But there's some wild speculation on what went down and a lot of it's not so good. And you see, you're not supposed to talk about that. Now, in Bible college at Grace University, we had a big discussion over that. But guess what you're told? You don't, you don't talk about that from the pulpit. You don't, you, don't, you don't bring it to the pulpit. Well, then why do you go to school? Remember you're told to to preach at a seventh grade level? Well, then why do you go to seminary? I don't need to go to seminary to preach at a seventh grade level because you're giving sermons. But you've got to deal with some of these issues. So if you're going to deal with the text, let's see how he's going to at least, what's, what's his presupposition that he may get ready to apply on the text, all right? And you can see, though, why it baffles study. Why it baffles study, right? Because... Some people don't want all of that. Some people, I want to make it very clear. Some people don't want all of that. Some people will say something like these words, right? Just a paraphrase. I just want Jesus. I don't want all that theology. Now, on one hand, I don't blame them. You keep Christianity simple. Remember when Christianity was simple? The best way to keep it simple Don't ever open a Bible. Don't ever study. And just listen to your little 30-minute sermon until your little heart's content. And you'll be like, praise Jesus. It's all so simple. But the minute you start studying, it gets ugly and it gets confusing. So he says it provokes and it baffles. He goes, even the non-believer and its authority rightly feels that it is unintelligent to remain in almost total ignorance of the most famous and ancient of books. So he says at this time in 1900s, even lost people were like, well, it would be 
foolish not to know it. I got to at least know it. I mean, it's one of the most famous books ever. It's the Bible. I got to at least know something about it. I don't think that's so much true in 2023, but at that time it was, right? And yet, most, even of sincere believers, soon retire from serious effort to master the content of the sacred writings. In 1917, he said most Christians do what? Stop giving up, trying to master it. Yet, it's so weird. We stop trying to master it, but we tell everyone we know it. We tell everyone it should control their lives. And we tell everyone that because of what it says, they're going to burn forever. But yet we don't want to actually master its content. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you process that. From a non-believer perspective, you would be like, you people are liars, okay? Because if you really believe it's the word of God, you not only would want to master it, you probably would be obsessed with it. If it's actually the words of God, Right? If it's actual the words of the creator of the universe, you would want, but even he's like, they don't really want to master it. They don't really want to master it. Now, we, we, we can do whatever we want. He goes, the reason is not too far to seek. He says, the reason for this is not too far to seek. It is found in the fact that no particular portion of scripture is to be intelligently comprehended apart from some conception of its place in the whole. He's like, here's the reason people don't want to master it. Because guess what's required to master it? You got to know the whole thing. In other words, you got to study 66 books. That means you got to master Leviticus. You got to master the minor prophets. You got to master Jeremiah, Daniel. Ezekiel, the major prophets. You gotta, you gotta try to figure out what in the world's going on in the Song of Solomon. You gotta figure out all of these things. Well, I, you can see why the average person is gonna do what? Oh, come on. I just wanna go to church and get a sermon. I just wanna believe in Jesus. And I can understand that. That's why from a Catholic perspective, it makes sense, right? I don't need to figure any of this out. I go to church and do what? Go to Mass. Listen to a 15-minute homily, take the sacraments, and go home. I don't need to worry about any of this. I'll go to catechism class. But in catechism class, what am I learning? A system. So I just say the system is true, and I don't have to worry about it. And a roundabout way, a lot of people want to be basically Catholics. Just give me the system. And I'm not going to question the system because I'll be, because if you don't, it's, your life's going to be a lot easier, right? So I, I, it's funny that he, he realizes, <laughs> hey, the reason nobody's going to do this is because it takes too much work and time and effort, all right? Uh, he goes, for the Bible story, for the Bible story and message is like a picture wrought out in mosaics. Each book, chapter, verse, and even word forms a necessary part and has its own appointed place. It is therefore indispensable to any interesting and fruitful study of a Bible that a general knowledge of it be gained. In other words, if you're going to be a fruitful Bible stu- student, you've got to have a basic understanding of the 
whole. So guess what he decided to do at the beginning of his Bible? Give a pan panoramic view so we could understand the whole. Now, how is he going to break down the whole? Because I don't know if everyone does it the same way. Are you ready? He's going to do this in one, two, three, four, five parts. He's going to give us five points in, in grouping the Bible together. In a pan so he's going to break the, pa uh, the Bible down in a pan panoramic, panoramic view in five basic parts. Are you ready for this? And it'll be interesting when you hear this. Okay, when I start breaking this down, if anyone, I don't know, I mean, you people have been going to church for a long time and claim to be Christians. If you've read any basic Bible study, any, anything, it's going to be amazing how some of this you're going to be like, oh, I've heard this. And it's going to, yeah, but you weren't told where it came from, were you? Right? Because I bet you I've been taught this. Who knows how many different Bible colleges I've been taught this. You ready? Here we go. First, here's the first thing he wants us to know. The Bible is one book. How, where are you getting this from? Where are you, how do you, oh, okay, you, okay, you're looking at the notes. Okay, which, which app did you get? Oh, okay, all right, cool. It's online. Okay, good. I know it's not in the app, so that's good. Okay, good. It's easy to find. So anybody wants to look it up, there you go. All right, so he first every, wants everyone to know what? The Bible is one book. That's very important. Now, I've been taught this. In fact, if you look at, um, I think it's Charles uh, Swindoll. His, he did an entire series called Masterworks. And I believe his introduction basically sounds like it comes from Schofield. Right? And I think, not, I think J. Vernon McGee, in his introductory notes to his five-year journey from the Bible, you know where it sounds like it came from? And Schofield, all right? <laughs> so, meaning that this was probably very influential at the time, right? So first, well, we know it was very influential because it was selling like crazy, right? All right, but, and guess what? I, I mean, I know it may seem weird to you, but it would not have been a, a weird thing at that time for people to read all of this introductory material. Why would it not have been so weird in the 1900s for them to be reading this introductory material? They didn't have access to any other stuff. They would have been like, yeah, I'm going to read this. Now, for us, we do what? If you bought a Schofield Bible, you most likely would do what? Just skip it. Just look at it. You wouldn't even look at it. You wouldn't even care, which is kind of sad, isn't it? All right, but so here we go. First, the Bible is one book. Seven great marks attest the unity. So he's going to say the Bible is one book. But there are seven marks that, I guess, attest to, that prove, that show the unity. Now, immediately he's telling you it's one book, but he knows it's made up of many different parts. But he wants us to see the unity. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Seven great marks attest this unity. Number one, from Genesis, from Genesis, the Bible bears witness to one God. Whenever he speaks or acts... He is consistent with himself and with the total revelation concerning him. So what attests to the unity of the Bible being one book is that there is one God. All right? Does that make sense? Everybody say amen to that? All right. Number two, the Bible forms one continuous story 
the story of humanity in relation to God. That's number two. Now, immediately when we read number two, Number one, I think, is somewhat of an observable fact because as a Christian, we believe, that, we believe that the Bible teaches that there's how many gods? One God. So that one we feel is a pretty much an observational thing, yes? But what is number two? Did everyone get number two down? Okay, all right. The Bible forms one continuous story the story of humanity in relation to God. When you hear that, I want everyone to tell me, what is that? What is that? Is that an observation? Is this an observation or is this an interpretation giving you a presupposition and how to read the whole Bible? What do you think? He just makes a claim about the entire Bible, everyone. He makes a claim that the entire Bible is what? How many stories? No, he says one story. And what is that story? The story of humanity in relation to God. Now, that's a, that's a big claim, right? Because immediately that tells you, have you even oh, gotten to Genesis yet? No, you haven't even got to Genesis. And he's telling you already, when you start reading that Bible... You're reading how many stories? One. All the stories are one story. Now, in some ways, don't you love that idea? Because that makes it simple, right? I may not understand all the parts, but I know it's all, it's all one long continuing story, right? If you read a novel or anything about storytelling, you may like, okay, I don't know what's happening here. I don't know what's here, but I know it's all one story. So even if I can't understand the individual parts, I know, and in fact, he summarizes the whole story. It's of man's relation to God. Is that not what he says? That may be observational, but it's only observational if you believe it's one continuous story. Right? I mean, that's an interpretation. Some people could believe it's a made up of fragmented stories. Why are y'all looking at me like I'm crazy? Okay. Well, we could argue. Now, we could, and that, now, now, that's a good argument. We could make an argument that it is definitely one long story about a nation in relation to God. There is no question there. Right? But some will argue, but all of, the, all of the stories of the Old Testament deal with this one nation in relationship to God. And then it changes. Now it's the relationship of the church or the Gentiles in relationship to God. Right? Okay, maybe we can make an argument. Well, right. So then we just say, even though it's nation-specific, right, I'm just saying we have to just make sure, because he's immediately telling us how to look at it, as one story, 
Now, I'm just saying, that gonna form it, that's going to form a presupposition, right, in your mind. Now, I'm, uh, whether it's right or wrong, I just want you to see that you at least have to stop and go. Because what you could typically do, like, a, I'm just saying many Christians who picked it up and read it, just from that point on would just tell you, what is the Bible? And they would say, one continuous story of man's relation to God. All right. Okay. Now, you could argue it's one continuing story of God and his relationship to his creation. So we could flip it around the other way. All right. All right. Okay. Right. So, right. And because his creation would involve everything. Nation. The planets. The angels. And all men, including Gentiles, right? So I, I would, I, if I was writing it, I would have flipped it a different way. It's one continuous story of God's relation to his creation and not specify which parts of the creation because the story includes every part. But he turned it around. It's one story of man's relationship to God. And I just start thinking when I do that, on one hand, I think Stacy said it or someone said, well, but... I mean, Israel's made up of people, so, okay. But I think the Bible goes more than just his relationship to humanity. It goes to all of creation, right? He curses creation. You got angels. You got demons. You have Satan. I think it's it's the story of God's relationship to all of creation. Say, I would change it. That's why I'm trying to argue it's a presupposition. Because I think that there's different ways of approaching it without saying it's about my relationship to God. I think it's about God's relationship to all of his creation. And then that raises questions. Do you see that? I'm not saying it's wrong to state it this way. I'm not making a dogmatic assertion of its correctness or its incorrectness. What I'm trying to help you see is almost instantaneously, we are already being given something that could serve as what? A presupposition that would guide your what? Your hermeneutic. And my only danger here, feel, is that it's making it more about us than making it about God. Now, that may be because my reform presuppositions step in, because my reform presuppositions always make it about whom? God. All right? Do you see how that... So that could be my own presupposition telling me that it's a story about God in relationship to, to creation. Do, do you see how that works? All right? I think this, we could find some parts of the Bible that seems to be about God's relationship to, or our relationship to God, but there's some part that seems to be more about God's relationship to us. You, you, we could get in there, right? So that's the second. What's the third? Since you're, everyone's reading it with me. Number three is? Records their fulfillment. All right, yes, so number three, for those listening online who may not have looked this up, the Bible hazards the most unlikely predictions concerning the future and when the centuries have brought around the appointed time, records their fulfillment. In other words, he's saying this attests to the unity. And why does it attest to the unity? Because there's all of these predictions and then there are fulfillment of said predictions recorded in history or maybe recorded in the, in the pages of the Bible. Now, this is very important for the system he's about to give us, right? Because we've already found out earlier he's not going to go with the allegorical view of prophecy, right? Now, if he's not going to go with the, allegor- the allegorical uh, view of prophecy, 
This is going to be a key point. Because if he believes prophecies have been made and prophecies have been uh, fulfilled and they're attested to in history, well, then he's going to believe that they were fulfilled in what way? Literally. No, he's going to, he's going to believe they were fulfilled literally, right? Which is going to set his whole system apart from those who believe they were fulfilled spiritually. Does that make sense? All right. Everybody got that one? All right, number four. The, uh, in fact, I'll read number three again for those listening online trying to take notes who, who are not looking at this. The Bible hazards the most unlikely predictions concerning the future and when the centuries have brought around the appointed time records their fulfillment. Number four, the Bible is a progressive unfolding of truth. Nothing is told all at once and once for all. The law is first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn. Without the possibility of collusion, often with centuries between one writer or scripture, uh, with one writer of scripture takes up an earlier revelation, adds to it, lays down the pen, and in due time another man moved by the Holy Spirit and another, and another, add new uh, details till the whole is complete. What is this, what, what is the theological term for this principle? He just alluded to. Progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. Now, I think someone said it a minute ago. I, th- I will argue, now you can tell me if you disagree, I think this one is an observational fact. I don't think this is a, a presupposition being laid upon the text. It is observable that when you're reading here, that, the, that certain information is not even alluded to, it's not even mentioned, right? And we know as you read, all of a sudden there's new information, and there's new information, and there's new information, and there's new information. And that because it's progressive, sometimes it can be a little confusing, can it not? Does that not lead to confusion and in interpretation? Because what do you have to remember when you interpret something? Well, wait a minute. What did they know at that time? And sometimes it can be maddening trying to figure out how to approach that, right? Because, for example, there are things happening in Genesis that we may go, that when the preacher preaches it, when the preacher preaches it, he will preach it as, that was wrong, that's a sin. But I always want to raise my hand and go, but was it? There was no law opposed to it. However, there are times, even though there was no law opposed to it, God condemns it. which can lead to really confusion and hermeneutical studies, right? Now, I know this. If God condemns it, clearly it was wrong, okay? But if God doesn't condemn it, because there's sometimes he doesn't seem to condemn a behavior, right? That's one of the first questions Stacy asked when she first started reading the Bible. It's like, well, wait a minute. How come, how come these people aren't getting in trouble for this, right? Oh, yeah, well, yeah, then... 
yeah, oh yeah, really confusing, right? Really, there's a lot of times some very confusing stuff. Now, sometimes it's even after a law is revealed, but it's just, it's always hard to remember like, well, wait a minute, because we go back and we read certain parts of Genesis and we're basically throwing the 10 commandments in their face. They wouldn't have known what the Ten Commandments are. They don't even know what you're talking. They don't even know who Moses is. And you're over, we're over there as preachers saying, well, according to James, da 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 And they're like, well, um, James has nothing to do with this at this time, right? So you got to first try to understand it. But it is, I think we can all agree, it is progressive, yes? What is revealed in one part? It's built, it's built, it's, which tells you what? You got to read the whole thing. You got to read the whole thing. Does that make sense? And I know what it also means is that whoever created time was a really evil person. Okay. All right. Because we're running out of it. All right. What number are we on? Five. All right. This one is quick. From the beginning to the end, the Bible testifies to one redemption. Now, uh, yeah, I'm not going to get into it. Just, just, you, okay, let's make sure we just get this out of the way. We are going to be looking at the dispensational system. No matter which system you're looking at, if you're looking at a preterist system, if you're looking at whatever, there's always different kinds, right? Just know that within dispensationalism, there's what we know is the classic I think there's what's called progressive dispensationalism. There's what's called ultra-dispensationalism. There is some forms of dispensationalism who would argue there isn't one redemption in the Bible. There were different redemptions based off the dispensation the people found themselves. So they will argue that there were some people in the Old Testament that they were redeemed under law, not by grace. All right? There are other, uh, more classic dispensation doesn't necessarily look at it that way. You can see why some people have some problems. You can see what would lead to that, right? Because you got some people in the Old Old Testament, how do they live their lives? Do this, and if you don't, you die. You got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. It's law, 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 law. Now, the argument is, well, then how were they redeemed? I will say, you could make an argument, well, they actually were redeemed by grace through the sacrifice, right? And by putting their faith in the sacrifice covering their sin, they were. Only problem is God was still killing them for doing the wrong thing. So then how do you, how do you, yeah, so then like, so then nobody would truly ever be redeemed then. So yeah, you get into, you, like, if they were redeemed by the law, then nobody was redeemed, right? You have all kinds of issues. So just know, Schofield is going that there was how many redemptions in the Bible? One. And when he's talking redemption there, he's not talking about redemption in a physical sense. He's talking about it in a spiritual sense, right? Okay, everybody understands that, all right? What's the next one? Okay, from the beginning to the end, the Bible has one great theme, the person and work of Christ. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. I, I perceive this to be a hermeneutical presupposition And I always get very dangerous of that, right? Do I believe Christ is mentioned and found throughout the Bible? Yes, obviously. That's an an observable fact. Why do I get nervous about this one? Because some people try to then put Jesus where? Everywhere. And I reject that, right? So they say that there's one 
theme, right? Is that what they call it? Uh, or I'm sorry, from the beginning to the end, the Bible has one great theme, uh, the person and work of Christ. I think it's very clear to see that Jesus is, is a major theme. Would that be a better way to say it? But God, I want you to write down what he says, all right? I don't want us to correct it because I want you to see that this is laying the foundation for how people are going to read the Bible, right? Because has this not greatly influenced Christianity? You've got friends, and, I've, and you probably have known Christians, who anytime they read the Bible, they think they can find Jesus everywhere. You know how many study guides and devotionals and even Bible study methods will tell you, what do you learn about Jesus here? And it doesn't matter what passage of the Bible. I always take that away and say, what do we learn about God here? Because I think some passages are about God the Father, not God the Son. Some passages, and I know that's the whole idea of one God, three distinct persons. Okay, but get the idea. But I, I, I will argue... And I don't know how this attests to the unity of the Bible, but I will say Jesus is a major theme that runs throughout. And I got no problem saying. But for for writing it down, you want to put down what Schofield said. That there is what? One great theme, and that is the person and work of Christ. Everybody got that down? All right, we're gonna get we're gonna finish this. We'll have to stop here. And finally, number seven. Now, you, you, I know he numbers these. This is all under point one. Remember, point one is the Bible is one book, and now he's giving us the seven points. To, so you could be putting these A, B, C, D, E, maybe working better for you than the numbers. Okay, but there you get the idea, all right? Or you could put Roman, well, never mind. However you want to outline it. All right, and finally, these writers, some 44 in number, writing through 20 centuries, have produced a perfect harmony of doctrine in progressive unfold uh, in progressive unfolding this is to every candid mind the unanswering unanswerable proof of the divine inspiration of the bible now i think there's an assumption there his assumption is that you take all the writers you take all 66 books you take every page and that it is in perfect harmony. I'm going to make an argument. I'm going to put forth a hypothesis here, and I'm going to let the online world debate it. I don't believe it's in perfect harmony. You know why I don't believe it's in perfect harmony? Because that's why we have 50 different systems trying to do what? Put it in harmony. Did not he himself attest that the reason you need to look at it in dispensations is because, what did he quote from Augustine? Remember the quote from Augustine that we read this morning? Distinguish the ages, the scriptures harmonize. Meaning, they're not in harmony, per se. I have to do what? I have to create a system in order to harmonize them. So I've got to go through, he's going to go through and arbitrarily go this age to this age. I'm going to distinguish that age from this age to this age. And once he gives us the seven ages, ages, he believes the distinguishing of the ages then does what? Bring the Bible into harmony. But 
Someone else is going to say that doesn't harmonize scripture. Covenant theology will say you've got to look through it through the lens of the that will harmonize scripture. Others will say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got I got the Bible here saying that I'm saved by grace, but but though over here it says that we're not saved by grace. How do I harmonize that? Well, there's been different approaches, right? Lordship, how do they harmonize their apparent contradiction of being saved by grace, but you have to work? Well, they harmonize it by saying, well, no, you are saved by grace, but works prove that you're saved. So if you don't have the works, then you were never saved. That's their attempt to harmonize it. Law and gospel attempts to harmonize it by going, wait, 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 wait. All those scriptures are law. They're always going to show you're condemned. So they don't, they're not used to prove that you're saved. They're used to show you that you can't be saved apart from grace. All right? That's law and gospel approach. Catholicism approaches it different, saying you have to have the works in order to be saved. If it was simple, you wouldn't have what? All the systems. All the systems. Listen to me. All the systems, including dispensationalism, including covenant theology, including all those systems of eschatology, all the systems of of salvation, Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, Calvinism, you name it. Lordship, they are all designed to do what? It's man's attempt to harmonize the scriptures, which seems to indicate that if harmony is there, it's not obvious and clearly seen or understood by those of us who read it. It seems to be beyond our capability to find, so we create man-made systems in order to harmonize it. Does that make sense? Because if, put it this way, if it was just simple and beautiful harmony, would we need a system then to harmonize it? Shouldn't. The systems demonstrate to me. Now, I still want you to write down what he said. What did he say? That all of these writers over all of this time have produced a, a perfect harmony of doctrine and progress and in progressive unfolding. It feels like there needs to be another word there, but okay. He just says in progressive unfolding. I would put in progressive unfolding revelation, period. I think he forgot the word revelation there, but okay. All right. This, it, this is to every candid mind, the unanswerable proof of the divine inspiration of the Bible. What, what is funny, you will hear this even in, in apologetics. Hey, you know how the Bible is proof that it came from God? Because you have all of these authors over all of this time who created this beautiful book that's in perfect harmony in every detail and every doctrine. Now, any lost person sitting in a conference like this <laughs> are looking at those so-called Christian apologists who make all kinds of money by going around the country speaking. Christian apologists are only there to make Christians feel comfortable. They rarely answer the question from the unbeliever because any unbeliever would be like, Yeah, beautiful harmony. When I leave here, I'm going to drive past 50 different churches and every one says they're right and the other one is wrong with 50 different systems and 50 different hermeneutics. Clearly, that would seem to dictate or to demonstrate what? There isn't perfect harmony. What do the systems prove? They prove that it's us trying to harmonize it. 
You can make, an, you can make a, a claim that it's harmony, but you can't prove to me that we've ever figured out that it's in harmony because we create systems to harmonize it. Now, what's the danger of creating a system to harmonize it? And I'll end with this. What's the danger of trying to create a system to harmonize it? What's required for a system to harmonize it? You have to stop looking at the scripture as script, at, at, like looking at the scripture and dealing with the scripture. You have to look at the scripture through the lens of the system so the apparent contradiction no longer exists. And then you can go, yeah, feels good. Feels good. Feels good. But I, I can't, you cannot do that. Don't bring your system to a Bible study. Right? What's the old saying? Don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Okay? Well, don't bring your system to a Bible study. Because technically, what I think it happens in a Bible study is that your system gets cut all up and there's nothing left of it. All right? Does that make sense? All right. I think so. I, I think we're good. I, I think we got disconnected there for a second. I hope we... Yeah, two minutes ago. Yeah, I got a second notification. Yeah, oh boy. Hopefully, hopefully the audio is still on at least one of them and we don't have any problems. Okay, we were having problems when we first started, but I think we're good. All right. If, we, if, we, if anyone online heard that we got disconnected, please email me and let me know. Um, and, or if which, which platform it got disconnected from so I can take the audio from one and put it on all the others. So, all right. There we go. That got, got, that's his first part at the panoramic view and he wants us to know that the Bible is one book, one book, and that he believes that these are the marks of the unity. I believe by the time he gets to the end, he kind of proves that it may be not as unified as he wants to make it believe because he, he's about to give us a system in order to try to make it look harmonious, <laughs> right? Okay, so there we go, all right. All right, now see, now I'm going to, now see, by criticizing it, I'm just made all the dispensationalists mad, see? So now the non-dispensationalists are like, yeah! Tear it apart until next week when I agree with it. They're going to be like, you idiot. Like, so, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a no win, but there we go. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, if there's, if there's anything we can gain from this is that we approach your word and we immediately are confronted with the reality that it's beyond our way of thinking, beyond our understanding. It's not according to our ways and we will always struggle with it. Forgive us when our attempts to understand it actually blind us from it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,